Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's bring in Stephen Gallo, shall we? Demo Capital Markets Head of FX Strategy. He joins us on the phone. Stephen, one line from you. These are dramatic times and the entire global order is shifting and I haven't even touched upon the broader European political backdrop. Stephen, just walk me through that, what it means for foreign exchange. Oh, well, I feel like I've been banging on this drum for a while now. I'll repeat it again. The forces that we had become become accustomed to prior to the global financial crisis and also in the immediate aftermath of the GFC, 2008-2009, when the Fed started QE, those forces have been going into reverse in terms of U.S. trade policies, in terms of the trend towards a smaller or, in fact, the U.S. will probably be a net exporter of petroleum and petroleum products uh, over the course of the next year or so, uh, in, in, in terms of the structural problems that are, are coming to the surface in China, in, in terms of reserve accumulation by major central banks, the big net exporting uh, countries of the world, Germany, China, they're, they're struggling. So things are shifting. And this is a dramatic about face for the global economy. And that's why the dollar is doing well almost mechanically by default. The dollar, global, the world economy, global trade is dollar based. Uh, and, and, and because it's dollar based, the initial, at least the initial phase of this shift uh, is destined to be dollar positive. E- even as you point out, uh, the, the U.S. manufacturing clearly is taking a hit now, though I would point out that that's only around a tenth of U.S. GDP. Uh, so it's not as big of a problem in the U.S. as it is, for, for example, Germany. Um, but but, but it, 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 it's a mechanical almost a mechanical appreciation of, uh, of the U.S. dollar because things are, are worse, so much worse elsewhere in the global economy. So, Stephen, in the here and now, the shock absorber in foreign exchange is the U.S. dollar. That's why we see dollar strength. And you say that's a mechanical response to what is happening around the world. What underpins a pivot away from that story, away from that mechanical response that feeds dollar strength? What underpins that change? So you basically, I think what you're asking for is when does the inflection point come? I, I guess there are a number of things that could cause this. You, you, you could have a reversal of the Trump trade policy, so Trump could lose the White House uh, in, in 2020. The U.S. could have a dramatic and severe recession, which causes enough Fed easing to, to, to cause a flow, a huge flow, back into emerging markets again, uh, despite their structural problems, which have come to the surface. But I... I tend to think I'm not I'm not banking on a Trump win in 2020 or anything like that. I, I mean, it's too early to tell, but I tend to think a lot of what yeah. has started is going to be very difficult to reverse because countries are being forced to turn more inward. China is turning more inward, and 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 you can right. see this in the data. You can see it in what terms of what's happening to supply chains yeah. in the Southeast Asia region. Stephen Gell, I love the long-term view and the bigger picture. I'm just trying to play pay for school supplies. What's the trade right now, given this mechanical dollar movement? What's a trade that's more most efficacious to make some money? 
Well, for the time being, as we approach the FOMC rate decision for September, the, mm-hmm. the, the debate about whether or not they do 20 or 50 or they're even more dovish than 50, that's going to rage. So I don't think now is the time where I would be adding to my long positions in the dollar versus uh, the major G10 currencies or, or any currency, really. I'd be waiting. We've also got the ECB in front of that, and they could disappoint uh, as well. So there's a lot of policy noise coming over the next couple of weeks. But ultimately, I want to say core long dollar versus G10. But I think in terms of the yen crosses, I still think we're probably going to see broader-based yen strength versus a number of currencies over the next few months. And to to our global audience, we look at yen as a dominant currency with its own unique characteristics. Identify your belief in yen and identify the domestic why of your belief. From a Tokyo standpoint, why does yen do what Stephen Gallo thinks it will do? Well, of course, you have the first on the, on the first instance, again, mechanical rally in the yen when global rates are Japanized or suppressed, right? So it's almost a mechanical reaction. And then, of course, you have the non, uh, non-commercial or the speculative flow front-running that move, getting long yen in anticipation of lower rates outside of Japan. But I think Japan, to a degree, because of its very strong external fundamentals, faces the same problem that Switzerland does. Japanese investors and Swiss investors do not routinely invest enough abroad to fully recycle the current account surplus. And that means their central banks are always going to be resisting strength in their domestic currencies when global forces turn against risk assets. And I think think the problem is even more acute in Switzerland, which is why I don't believe the SNB when it tells me that the Swiss franc is overvalued. In fact, I think from the perspective of a Swiss investor, the Swiss franc is undervalued because they want a stronger Swiss franc so that they can go abroad and buy more foreign assets. They're too expensive at these levels. Why not just invest in the domestic economy, which is exactly what Japanese investors do. Um, So so I think this is is part of the issue here that these central banks face. Um, their, their domestic investors don't want to plow enough of their capital into foreign assets to allow right. the current, current account surpluses to be offset. Stephen Gallo, thank you so much. BMO Capital Thanks, Markets Stephen. as we get started on, a, on a, just a cacophony of new so- Right now, it is important to identify who Steve Tseng is. Absolutely definitive on the reach of Hong Kong from the time of a colony forward to the great transition and on to this modern age. He's at UofL, uh, so is China Institute. Steve Tseng, we are just thrilled that you could join us today. Steve Tseng, what do you take of this moment where a chief executive partially capitulates to protesters. Explain this moment in Steve Tseng's Hong Kong. Well, I think it's a very positive step that the chief executive in Hong Kong, Carrie Lam, has finally withdrawn the two bills, which was the trigger for the summer of discontent in Hong Kong. But I'm afraid that it is too little, too late for most of the demonstrators in Hong Kong. So that is not going to put an end to the problems we have seen in Hong Kong. I think there will be more people coming out in this in, in demonstrations in the uh, 
few weeks coming. How is she influenced in 2019 by Beijing? It's different than when you wrote A Modern History of Hong Kong, isn't it? Yes. Now, at the beginning of the summer, in June and perhaps the beginning of July, it was clear that Carrie Lam, the chief executive in Hong Kong, was in charge of policies in Hong Kong. Sometime in July, it would appear that she no longer was fully in charge and that she was by then receiving instructions from Beijing. So the latest move she has made in terms of finally agreeing to withdraw the two bills would have been acting on instructions or at least approval from Beijing. This is not just what Carrie Lam is doing. It is the Communist Party of China applying um, a softer approach at the moment after having used a hardline repressive approach that has failed to achieve the results they want. So, Professor, on a day like today, Carrie Lam will be the full guy, but I just wonder, from your reading and from your research, to what degree President Xi Jinping has overstepped in the last several months? I think we are talking about President Xi overstepping in the last uh, six years or so. Explore that for us, Professor. Uh, There is an inherent tension in the arrangement for Hong Kong to be kept as a special administrative region in China under the formula called one country, two systems. For people in Hong Kong, one country, two systems is there to protect their wage of life for 50 years from 1997 until 2047. For the Chinese Communist Party, it has always been a transitional arrangement and at some stage, Hong Kong will be properly part of China. And therefore, for about 20 years after 1997, nearly 20 years, not quite 20, um, both sides allow for a degree of ambiguity. The Chinese do not push too far, and Hong Kong people accept that they really are not able to exercise the degree of autonomy that they would have have liked. After Xi Jinping became leader of China, he started to push much more aggressively towards Hong Kong, requiring people in Hong Kong to demonstrate their support uh, of the Chinese government and of China more generally. And that's when you started getting the pushback from the younger generations in Hong Kong, the generation of Joshua Wang and Agnes Zhou, and these are the people who became leaders of the movement in 2014 to push back. And they started off as school children, school kids in high schools, refusing to learn uh, Chinese curriculum. This is the pushback that slowly generated a very widespread discontent in Hong Kong over the degree of autonomies they have. Yeah. And when the protests came up this summer, a lot of them feel that it is the last chance they have to come out and defend Hong Kong's way of life or they will lose it. So, Professor, this is one forum where we are seeing this pushback play out quite clearly and sometimes violently on the screens of our TVs and smartphones around the world. I just wonder whether the trade story 
is also a story of pushback against China and China trying to exert its economic power on the global stage in ways that are not favorable to the developed world and to the West and the way of living that some people have experienced. Um, Professor, talk to me about that, how the situation in Hong Kong has parallels to the blowback, perhaps, that the president of China is experiencing on the trade front. Well, the events in Hong Kong in this summer, I think, was not really uh, tied to the trade war. Um, It is tied to the approach that Xi Jinping has adopted in making China much more assertive. Mm -hmm. And in that assertiveness, he's generated a change in the view of the U.S. establishment on how to deal with China. And the trade war is part of that pushback from the American establishment. So they are kind of in parallel and in that sense linked, but they are not directly uh, related in a causal way. Professor, one final question. What is the professor saying to-do list for Donald Trump? What can the president of the United States do to advocate for the people of Hong Kong? Well, for the president of the United States, I think the really important issue is to make sure that the U.S.-Hong Kong Policy Act, which gives Hong Kong uh, special advantages and special treatment separate from that being received uh, by the PRC, the People's Republic of China, is being absolutely enforced to the latter and in its spirit. That Hong Kong must be maintaining its degree of autonomy uh, guaranteed in the Sino-British Agreement of 1984 for Hong Kong to continue to receive the advantages given in the yeah. Hong Kong Policy Act and to reiterate that if it is being violated, then the U.S. government will take it very, very seriously indeed. That may deter the Chinese government from uh, overstepping the marks in Hong Kong. Steve Seng, thank you so much. University of London saw as of course, his classic from 20 years ago, the modern history of Hong Kong is just an absolutely extraordinary thank moment you, Steve. at the time. When Dee Sowerby with us, David Sowerby of Ancora, uh, all sorts of work institutionally with explaining why you don't have to buy Amazon and Apple to move forward. There's a few other stocks out there. So have, have you ever seen the skew to large cap David Sowerby like we've got right now? Is this typical or is this like never, never before? December 1999 was the last time we've seen this kind of skew of large caps trading at Okay. Price to earnings valuation in excess of a small cap. The same story in growth to value. So you go out 18 months from December 1999 and say it's going to be ugly 18 months from now? It wasn't if you're a small cap value investor. You had positive returns in a market that was on its way to yeah. a 50% decline. I'm looking at a sharp ratio for mid caps right now that's pretty cool, and that is risk and reward. Let's identify those two right now. What's the reward in mid cap and small cap versus the up, up, up for large cap right now? Particularly in a small cap space, I think there's two ingredients. Number one is the ability to find stocks where five or fewer Wall Street analysts follow the company compared to what the What makes 40. those stocks go up then? If nobody's following them, nobody knows they're there. <laughs> 
because they're underfollowed. You can do your homework on the company and identify value where the company is going up, where it's migrating from small to mid cap. You catch them early before they go into the Russell 2000 index. That's a great formula. And as you and I have talked about repeatedly, the Bloomberg spinoff index back to 2002, it's compounded at 14% versus the overall market at less than 10%. David, you've talked about that a lot on this program. For our listeners that might have missed it, talk to us about what that actually is. It is, it is when, Jonathan, when a large company spins off a smaller company, they're typically doing it to unlock value, to let the small company flourish on its own, that they don't have to siphon off their cash flow to the large cap beast. So as, as an example, Sendent spun off Win, uh, Wyndham Hotels a number of years ago. Discover, which is migrated to a mid-cap stock, spun out of uh, Dean Witter a number of years ago. We see spinoffs all the time. They're usually 20 to 30 a year. We try to find the 15 best, and the spinoffs are a great formula for long-term alpha generation. They haven't worked since April of this year, but the long-term success story is, I think, is very validated. Well, let's talk about what's been happening over the last couple of months. Small caps underperforming large caps, which is a curious story for a lot of people because the risks look international and you would think the multinationals would get hit more than, say, the small caps, which are exposed to a relatively better U.S. economy compared to the rest of the world. What is the story there, David, for you? I I think it's while you thought that small caps would hold up better because they had less China exposure and less trade sensitivity, overriding that in a tug of war has been slower global global growth, slower U.S. growth. We saw it with the ISM numbers yesterday. Yeah. I think that's trumped small cap in the near term. The greater uncertainty has, has uh, compelled people to flee to large cap certainty, particularly in a growth space. It's put small cap on hold. I mean, the names. I mean, Wyndham Hotel, I think a lot of our people know. People don't know DXC Technologies, Granite Point, uh, Cars.com. I mean, all these names that, and I'm as guilty of this as anybody, the media doesn't cover. Is it the same old, same old decade? Or is there something new this time around with micro cap, small cap, and mid cap? The, the success story goes back to at least the 20s, if not longer, that over the longer term, small caps will outperform anywhere from one to one and a half percentage points annualized. And over a long term time period, I like to say that's what's going to get me to retirement. A little bit bigger square okay, then footage than that. What happened with the autumn of 2018? Their massive underperformance over over the last 11 months, 10 months. I, I think that's global growth uncertainty, U.S. growth slowing. At that time, what was the prospect of not higher but lower interest rates? That took small caps down. David Sarby, thank you so much with Encore. Too short a time. Good to see you, David. Uh, today on mid cap, small cap. If you are in Asian studies, and we've had the immense honor on this program to speak with people like Orville Shella Berkeley and Jonathan Spence, the giant of Yale, and another one is someone who framed New England Chinese studies. Her name is Ellen Widmer, and she was a hero to so many back when nobody did Asia studies, nobody did China studies. Uh, out of Wesleyan, 
uh, and uh, Columbia is someone who has lived the Chinese live and writes about it to this day. And Stevenson Yang uh, joins us writing for uh, Bloomberg Opinion as well. well. How lonely was it doing China studies at Wesleyan a few years ago? Uh, well, it's it's pretty terrifying to be placed alongside those names, and I would never place myself with them. Um, I didn't do Chinese studies. I just stumbled into China in about 1985 because it was a better job than journalism. Well, that's good. I mean, John and I are looking for that. John and I are looking for that as, as well. The China of 1985, how different is it than now? Elizabeth Economy would say there's a huge difference with this new regime. Well, uh, it, it's... Let, let's say the post-89 China was very, very different from the 85 China. 85 China was, 85 to 89 were, was a very exciting mm -hmm. period, a lot of opening up, uh, a lot of chaos, really. People earning a lot more money than they had ever imagined before, people starting new, new companies, all sorts of things. But after 89, right. things changed. What you've written about recently is the dollar dynamic. And we hear a lot about this from financial types with suits and ties on. Explain to us your take on how we can manage this relationship through how we control dollar flow internationally and dollar flow with China. Yeah, it's it's time for people to realize that the capital account is is inextricably linked with the current account and that we can't simply focus on trade flows to try to correct things. Actually, the capital account is a better way to address it. And the way to address it is to raise rates uh, on, on U.S. Treasuries. Uh, raise long-term U.S. rates, which will reduce capital flow into China and uh, increase capital flow outside yeah. of China. And what's so important about this, John, is it's not just raise rates for one reason. There's a set of reasons, including international and the efficacy of raising rates. So, Anne, you go through this very detailed piece on Bloomberg Opinion, which essentially lays out the following logic, that if the trade war objective is to even the playing field for American firms, when you think about the Federal Reserve, the president should be ordering them not to cut interest rates. Just, just piece that together for a lot of our listeners that might not be following the logic. Just make that work. Well, for the last 10 years, a little over 10 years since the, great, the global financial crisis, U.S. interest rates have been close to zero, and that has caused probably about $2 trillion to flow into China, that free money essentially has been what's fueled the Chinese investment boom and made them able to compete unfairly with U.S. firms. Is that a little uh, vague for you? Well, no, I just think we should explore for the Federal Reserve more specifically. Here in the United States, you think it would be better than for the U.S. central bank to be raising rates. What damage would that do domestically? In the U.S., that would do damage to the U.S. Uh, public markets for sure, but it would not do damage to the U.S. consumer or the U.S. you know average average person. Um, and it's time for public markets to come down. I mean, within the public markets, and, and just very very quickly here, what do you look for in the Hong Kong debate? It's been a tumultuous morning, or our morning in Hong Kong. What, what do you look forward to? That is to a coming into a solution. That is a fascinating thing going on in, in Hong Kong. Unfortunately, if Carrie Lam had made her statements two months ago, yeah. then it probably would have worked. Now it's, uh, I think it's too little too late. And, uh, you know, China is working mightily to avoid a crash in the Hong Kong markets. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but what's going to happen to the protests? 
Hard to say. And Stevenson Yang, thank you so much. Writing for really interesting stuff. Here, a different view on China. We love that, uh, particularly with her decades of work in uh, at China. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. 